All right, we are doing Christmas now. We've been doing some Christmas messages. We've been talking about, um, in some ways, what can we glean from very familiar passages? Passages that we know very well, passages that we tend to go to sleep with. You know, I mean, it's just like, I, I know how it is. I can remember going to church and, you know, and the pastor would say, you know, open up to Luke 2. And I'd be, oh, boy, here we go. Know this stuff, you know. And uh, so I want to talk about Luke 2. What? Oh, no. It's like, I just, why did I even say that story? I just shot myself in the foot. All right. So we're going to look at Luke 2. I'm going to read this passage to you. Uh, you can follow along if you have it on your phone, if you have your Bible with you. And then as we go back through it, we'll be putting up passages, as, uh, parts of it as we look. But it's a very familiar passage for us. Luke 2, starting at uh, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The angel, then when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what they had been told, what, they, who, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. All right, so I want you to see something as we look at this passage. There's kind of a couple things I want to highlight. The first one, first thing I want you to see is the light and the fear. It starts at the very beginning there. In verse 8 and 9, we see this. And there were shepherds uh, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. It's, a, it's an interesting thing here because there's, there's some things here that we kind of have to look at. Now, those of you who know me, you know every once in a while, uh, I'll, I'll get, get on to things that I say are very, very important. Like one of those things that I'll say at times is grammar matters, right? And all English teachers are like, we love him. We love him, right? Because it didn't matter to me when I was a kid. I got to be honest with you. I didn't see the point of it. And now I'm seeing, as I learned, you know, this grammar matters. It's so important. And so every once in a while, we have a little sidelight in the middle of a passage, and I tell you, grammar matters. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking we ought to have like a little theme song that plays. You know, like the late night hosts have a little theme song that plays, you know, like, grammar matters, grammar matters. You got to pay attention because grammar matters. Just like, and then, buddy, boom, like that. Yeah. So obviously, that is not one of my better ideas. But if, like, if the roof, root was playing it, you, you, some of you, you'd listen. Jean-Baptiste, if he was doing it, you'd listen, because grammar matters. And it matters very much here, because there's some key things that we can learn here. When we look at these shepherds, and it talks about how afraid they are. And some will say they were terribly afraid. Some, some versions translate it in different ways. But here's, here's what's so important about that. Because what happens is, Luke, he writes the word fear, two times in this passage. 
and then he sticks a mega on it. So he uses phobos, he uses the Greek word for fear, and he changes it. One's a little different from the other. One, the first one, has this idea of this fear, but inherent in that idea is the desire to flee. It's so scary, you want to run. And so he says that the shepherds suddenly have this fear, desire to run, incredible fear, and then mega he puts a mega on it, as, as a, and in the Greek, oftentimes, what, what apply, it goes backwards. The mega comes after the words that, it, that it's working on, you know. And so it's this mega, mega, epic fear, this terrifying fear. He's trying to get across to us how afraid they were. It wasn't like they were going, oh, my goodness. Will you look at that? That's a kind of, <laughs> got chills, right? No, it's nothing like that. They're like, I want to run. And I started thinking about this. What stops them from running? And there's an interesting word here, and and the way they translate it is that the the glory of the Lord shone around them. All right? I always had this idea that there was this, like this angel, and prang, it was bright. He was a bright white angel, and like maybe there was a couple of floodlights right behind him, like indirect lighting, and they shone around him, and it was just like, whoa, that is a bright angel. But the word means that they were engulfed with the light. It, it hemmed them in on every side. It was not like, wow, that's light. Let's go there. Oh, that's light. Oh, that's... They were engulfed with light. They were struck in fear. Right? So this is a huge thing for them. This is important. You know, we have these wonderful ideas of what happened, you know, and it was so sweet and thoughtful, and, and it's not. It's incredibly fearful at this point. And so that's why the angel says, stop, don't be afraid, don't run, don't you run, you know, don't be afraid. That's what happens. Why? Because of this particular, and we're told what this light is. It's not the sun. It's not a bright lamp. It's the glory of the Lord, the presence of God. That's what's going on here. They are surrounded They are hemmed in on every side by this incredible light, the presence of God. And the light shows us something. This is always important for us. Anytime, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he's telling us something very important. And the very important thing, at least one of them, is this. The light shows us that we're not God. We're creatures. Because it overwhelms us. I'm just a creature I'm not God. Thousands of years before, a man and a woman were living in the light of that joy. They were living in the light. They were built for it. And one day, something happened. And we, what happened? We know they became afraid. They became afraid, so they hid from the light. On that day, they decided to become modern people. They found a consultant who could help them in their decision-making process concerning a tree. And and basically, they were told, as a human being, you need to be in charge. You need to be in charge. Only you can determine what's right and wrong for you. And so they decided to become their own ruler, in essence, their own God. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to do this? You've tried to act like somebody that you really weren't. Have you ever tried to 
uh, or maybe even more applicable, have you ever had a job you were totally unqualified for? And if you haven't, you can imagine what it is like. If you have a job you're totally unqualified for, like maybe you just couldn't find a job, couldn't find a job, and they said, do you think you can do this job? Yeah, I think I can do it. And you get in the first day and you go, oh my goodness, I'm in so far over my head, I have no clue what's going on. I didn't, spreadsheets are harder than I thought they were. And you know, all this stuff. And so you just feel, you realize you're totally unqualified for the job. And how do you get then? You become very nervous because you're afraid people will find out you need this job. You get kind of defensive and anxious when people come and say, hey, I didn't understand, you know, you sent us these figures. Listen, you know, I'm getting it. It'll get to you Tuesday. You're stumbling along trying to figure out what to do, how to do it right. And here's the worst thing. If someone who is very qualified walks in and starts talking to you, how's the job coming? Fine, I'm really busy, I can't talk right now, right? What happens, what happens? You know this person could show you up. You're on pins and needles. You have this fear. What? Fear of exposure. Fear of exposure. I'm not all that you think I am. I'm not all that maybe I've made myself out to be. See, we want to be in charge. We want to be God. And the the job that we've taken, we are incredibly unqualified for. We don't have the skills for it. That's why we're afraid of failure. That's why we're afraid of rejection. That's why we're afraid at times of the future, because we are not qualified for this. Why? Because we don't have the power of God. We don't have the holiness of God. We don't have the glory of God. So what do we do? We suppress it. We deny it. But sometimes the light comes and we're exposed. Right now, there may be things happening in your life that are showing you that you are not capable of running your life. You are not in control. And that's why oftentimes people get mad or they're afraid of the light. When actually we can be learning a lesson from the light, it is teaching us and what it's showing us because primarily it is showing us that we are creatures. Um, There's a man I really respect. I've, I've read a number of his books His name is Francis Collins. He's the director of the National Institutes of Health. Um, He's about to retire. But he was the man who headed up the the group of of scientists, world-renowned scientists, who unraveled the DNA code, finally unraveled it and mapped it for us. took about 10 or 12 years. He ran it. He was on the cover of Time magazine. There were even some people that said he might be the Einstein of this generation. He's just this brilliant, brilliant man. He grew up in a household that had no idea, no concern or thought of God. And uh, he is not a believer. He, he was, a, he was a, uh, early on, he was an atheist. And when he first started, he was doing cancer research. That's what got him into DNA and stuff like that. And he noticed something. He had a number of patients, and he mostly worked with terminal patients as they were studying them to try to learn more before they died, to help others. I mean, they were very upfront about this. You're not going to recover, but this will help others down the road if you will allow us to poke you and prod you and stick you and take, the, you know, that, all that stuff. And so some people did. And he noticed that a, that a number of his patients had no fear of death. They, they, they had in this incredible, he writes about it, they had this incredible calmness as they went through incredibly painful situations. And they knew, they knew what they had was terminal. And he was asking this lady, he said, you're so exceptional. What is it? And she said, it's Jesus. I know Jesus. He's with me right now. 
He's with me in the pain. He's with me in, in, in all of these procedures, and he will take my hand and guide me through death into everlasting life. It's because I know Jesus. I believe in him with all my heart. And he writes, she turned to him and just looked at him and said, Doctor, what do you believe in? And all of a sudden, he realized something. He doesn't believe in God. Why? Well, I didn't, my parents didn't. And then he, then he, then he went to college. And then, and then he went to, you know, he became a doctor. And then he went to further studies. He said, my professors generally didn't. I just assumed it wasn't important. Nobody intelligent believes in God. And then he realized what he'd done. He'd done something that a rational scientist should never do. He simply dismissed something because other people told him. And so he started studying. And somebody gave him a book. It was written by a man named C.S. Lewis. And the book's called Mere Christianity. It's an incredible book. I highly recommend it. Easy to read. No chapter is more than three pages. That's my kind of book right there, right? <laughs> the bright light at the end of the tunnel is very close when I read that book, right? And every chapter is standalone. You don't have to read one to get to the next. You can pick and choose anywhere you want to go. What happened to him? What happened to him? The light started shining. To this woman, the light started shining, and he found it very uncomfortable. And so he said, I'm going I'm to study this. I'm going to be rational. I'm a scientist, and I'm going to study this. And, and that way I can say, I'm an atheist and I got no qualms. I've studied it. And suddenly he found, he told a friend, I, I don't know, this, some of this is making sense. I want to tell you, there's a book out. It's a super easy book to read that talks about, because all of this hinges on one thing. The four Gospels. Are they historical books that we can trust? That's it. Those four Gospels. Are they historically accurate books that we can trust? And I want to recommend a book to you. I don't do this too much. Uh, but there's a guy named Richard Bauckham, right? He, he teaches at Cambridge, I think it's Cambridge University. And uh, he published a short little book for people who are just inquiring. It's called Jesus, A Short Introduction and by Richard Bauckham, and, and it's published, it's published by, I mean, th this is not some book, you know, like some of these publishing houses you've never heard of that sound like they're a little, you know, Bill and Ted's excellent publishing company or something like that. This is published by Oxford University Press, all right? So it's a reputable, I mean, the, the whole thing, and, uh, and he's, a, he's a brilliant, brilliant man, and it just is Jesus, a short introduction, it just talks about the four Gospels and why we can trust them. Now, he's written a longer one that's, that's, that's deeper, and, and you can always do that one too if you want. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, but I recommend it. And so what happened with Francis Collins is he started searching, he started, and he realized something. It is rational to believe that Jesus is God, but that's not the whole thing. He said, I had to take a step of faith and embrace him as my Savior. And that's what he did. And his life changed from that moment on. You see, our reaction to the light is key. The light tells us we're creatures. We're not adequate. We have to embrace that. We have to see it. I'm inadequate. I'm a sinner. And then 
we finally get in touch with reality. So when you're fearful, when I'm fearful, the key then is this. I look at the light. I try to see what's being taught rather than hiding or running. All right? So the first thing we looked at is the light and the fear. Now I want you to see something else in this passage. The light and the fear, now beholding the good news. That's verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Okay, so he's, he's packaging all this incredible, this is incredible. And he says, look, he is the long-awaited Messiah, <clears throat> but he's also God. The, that word there for the Lord, when the, when the Greeks tried to, the, the Jews who spoke Greek tried to figure out a word that they would use for Yahweh, the name of God. This is the word they chose. And so he's, he's the Messiah, he's the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. All right? Now, first thought is, Bob, there's no behold in this message, in this passage. I know, but there should be. Here's why. When it says, I bring you good news, the translators are grappling with a word, and the word is behold. And, and, and it's translated in other, other, other versions. And it has this idea of there's this news for you to look at. So they, they went that route, bring you good news. But the word literally means just behold, look at this. It's a strong word. It means to look at something that's very very important. Look at something that's exceptional. And it's written in, it's an imperative. It's a command. It's not like, oh, you might find something interesting over here if you look. No, it's like, look at that. Look at that. That will change your life. Look at it. Behold, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. And so the light comes, and it helps us begin to see reality. And now that we begin to see reality... He's saying, now I want to show you how to deal with your realistic fears. Look, behold, look at the gospel of great joy. Look at the good news of great joy. That's how you deal with your fears. When the light exposes things, how you deal with it is, look, behold. Look at what I'm showing you. What is the good news of great joy? Now, we all know what's going on with Jesus. But let's just look at this for a second, because the good news of great joy is it's Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. It means ultimate love, ultimate meaning, ultimate truth, ultimate reality has broken into this world. Up there came down here. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what happened. His kingdom broke through. Greatness descended. I mentioned that last week a little bit. I wasn't ready to go into it. I, I, I did some reading, and I know sometimes I'm a broken record, but here's, this is C.S. Lewis again, and I love this. He says, greatness is proved by being able to descend. The greater became the lesser at Christmas, but the lesser cannot become the greater. And his, and, and, and his point is, in mathematics, in physics, in everything, it's proven, and he says, here's an example. This is why an animal lover can become kittenish with their cat, lay on the floor and roll around and play and laugh and have fun and know that the cat is having fun too. But their cat will never read with them or discuss philosophy. 
Because the greater can become the lesser, but the lesser can't become the greater. That is why a person who is at peace and full of joy can enter into the hurt of another person, can empathize and comfort someone who's hurt and despondent and depressed. But someone who is hurt and despondent and depressed cannot enter into the happiness and joy of another person. It's greater. The greater can become the lesser. He ends it by saying, that is why, and this is, he wrote this during World War II, that is why Lincoln would have been able to understand Hitler, but Hitler will never be able to understand Lincoln because Lincoln is the greater. So the greater became lesser. This is what Christmas is saying here. When you're humble enough to become weak, when you're secure enough to become vulnerable, God will change you and you will begin to become like our Savior, Jesus. And you will learn how sometimes we descend into greatness with others. This is the good news of great joy. God descended and now we're a part of the greatness of God because the ideal broke into the real. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, we, we talk about this all the time. This is where I love to talk about um, um, Don Quixote because there's some great illustrations in that book and in that play, but it takes too much time and people are bored of Don Quixote sometimes. We have this idea that we live in the real world. You know, the ideal world, we would love it. Peace on earth, goodwill towards, oh, everybody, that, that's awesome. That's the ideal, that's up here. And there's this, there's just like, there's this barrier and there's the we, real world that we live in. And this is the real world. This is the world where children get shot at schools. This is a world where abuse happens. This is the world where people doing nothing at their own fault suddenly can be snuffed out in an instant through an accident or through a tragedy or through a senseless killing. This is the world where we grapple to understand with this, we try to protect our family from, but we know deep down inside we can never totally protect our family. We can't, and we know that. And this is the real world. And we see the ideal world where women and children, people aren't abused. The ideal world where people experience true joy and true love. And we go, man, I know, but that's a pipe dream. That's not, that's ideal. That's not real. And the good news of Christmas is that God broke that wall. And the ideal came down into the real and said, it's possible now. True joy, true love, true contentment. It's possible now. And when we give ourselves to Jesus Christ, he comes in and lives in us and gives us the ability to live that way. Now, we're still sinners. We still struggle. It's an up and down kind of thing. But every once in a while, every once in a while, we get glimpses of the ideal world right around us. And it is incredible. It is incredible. I remember one time, I've shared this, I remember one time we, start, we started going years and years ago to Arizona. Every year, every year, every year. And a person saying, you're, you're, you're gonna keep coming back, aren't you? And I said, I'm coming back every year 
And he said, that's how we know you love us. That's how we know you love us. He said, there's lots of groups that come out on the reservation and serve for a week, and we never see them again. They kind of assuage their conscience. They feel a little better about living in their privileged lives. They feel a little better about maybe they helped a little bit of all the injustice that's been done to us in their name, and so they think they're good. He said, but you love us. You love us. And I said, this is it. This is it. The ideal is breaking down into the real. Lives change. Hearts change. People change from the inside out. And this is what Christmas is all about. The ideal has broken the wall and come to be to reside in the real. And they said, born today to you is Christ, the Messiah, and the King. And when we behold it, we are receiving the message. But I want to show you something about receiving the message. Sometimes God gives us a message in unexpected ways. And when they, the, uh, the shepherds, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds got, and I touched on this last week, but the shepherds got a spectacle. They got a vision. They saw glory. Everyone else just got a shepherd. That's all they got. Shepherds are the bottom of the ladder. They're the marginal ones. Their testimony is not valid in court because they were people of poor character. They were heavy drinkers. Last night with the kids, I said they were stinky because they hung around with sheep all the time. They were considered low and common. And God sends his message to the shepherds with an angel, and then everyone else gets a shepherd. And we all want angels. We all would love to have an experience with an angel, but most of us, it's just a shepherd, somebody who's not that good, not that perfect. Do you ever think about that? What a poor way to get out a message. You know, what a poor way for God to spread his message. Use shepherds. Obviously, he's not working well. Well, maybe not. He has ways that we don't understand. And he often uses unlikely people, the shepherds, the women at the tomb. In the Old Testament with Elijah, God came to him. After all this stuff, he came to him in a still, small voice, the unexpected ways. In the New Testament, after the resurrection, the disciples get Jesus for 40 days. He teaches them this ragtag group of deniers and quitters and cowards, and he teaches them and he loves on them. And then he leaves, and what do we get? We get them. We get them. And so often, for all of us, you, you, you may have heard the gospel, heard the good news of Jesus Christ through a flawed messenger. I get this all the time, talking, working with young people all the time, and, it's, and, and, and they tell, you know, I, my parents told me all about Jesus, but my parents were jerks. And so... I don't believe it. See, what did they do? It's a non sequitur. They, they decided because the, the messenger is flawed, the message must be flawed. And that's not true. We have to get past that. Sometimes we are going to get the message in an unexpected way or from a person who is flawed. A lot of times through family members or friends, and they have their flaws. I'm flawed. There are people in this room that I have hurt and you have forgiven me 
because you have recognized that. And I'm grateful because I'm flawed. But the message is true, regardless of the flaws of the messenger. So sometimes God gives us a message in unexpected ways. Sometimes what he says is not what we want to hear. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into, gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Now, what do I mean when I say sometimes what, what we're told is not what we want to hear? And it's this. And anywhere, surveys show this. If people talk, you ask people in the United States of America about Christmas. And they'll say, oh, yeah, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. God loves us, and it's happy, and if we try hard, and we really try to be good people, he'll accept us into heaven. And that's not the message. That's not the message. Because if you read it, what does it say? It says, um, glory to God in the highest, and and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. That That is a synonym for grace on the people who have received this grace. This grace is available for everyone, but not everyone receives it. And he's saying this is what the good news is. The good news is now is there is grace. But see, for a lot of us, that's the problem. We just think, if I follow God, I get a comfortable life. Didn't work out well for Jesus and Paul and Peter and James and John, but I think it'll be different for me. If I follow God, I'll have a nice, comfortable life. And the message of Christmas basically is you've been fighting with God and we had to establish a peace. You've been fighting with God for for his job. You want his job. I want his job. This battle with God shows that even in the fighting inside yourself and the fighting against others, it works it out in so many ways in our lives. We see it all over the world. And the way to get peace is not by trying, because you can't do it. God did it. Jesus has come, he lived, and he died for each one of us. It is received by grace, and then we can be at peace. At peace with God. And this is a really profound way to understand your life. You have been fighting with God for his job. Now, what do I mean? Let me give you an example. When you're worrying... When I'm worrying, why am I worrying? And some people are torn up with worry. Why? Because I'm fighting with God over who gets who sits in the driver's seat. Because oftentimes, if I'm honest, I think I know better than God does. That's why I worry that he's not going to do what I want him to do. And we can do that. We want his job. Why? Because we're afraid he's, he's not going to get it right. And my life will suffer, or my family will suffer. I'll lose all my stuff. See, worry is not failing God. Worry is fighting God. That's an important distinction for us. Or if you're dealing with resentment, when we hold a grudge, what are we doing? We're fighting with God for his job as judge. We think, I really know what this person deserves, and I am going to rehearse this in my heart until it happens and I'm going to grind my teeth, and I'm so mad at that person. I hate them. But see, here's the point. 
You do not know what that person deserves. We do not know what that person deserves. And when we're bitter and when we're resentful, we're not failing God. We're fighting him for his job. And some people can say, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm not fighting God. I'm a good person. I'm better than most. What does that attitude imply? God owes me. I've been good. He owes me just because I've been pretty good. And what is that saying? I'm the one that determines what salvation is. I'm playing God when I say that. As if, as if my estimation of things counts for anything in the totality of the universe. All the anxiety, all the problems, all the internal struggles, all the fear, all the bitterness inside us and between us and others, they're all a sign that we want His job. And the message of peace is this. The light shines. It shows us that we're creatures, that we're inadequate, that we need Him. And it shows us that He has come to bring peace in our lives. Peace between us and God. And peace is available through Jesus. The struggle is over. Third thing. Sometimes God gives us a message in unexpected ways. Sometimes what he says is not what we want to hear. And finally, listening to God takes effort. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I've talked about this a number of times because I love this verse. I used to always think this was like Mary scrapbooked it, right? I just, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you don't, we don't say these things because they sound almost sacrilegious, but I'm going to say it. You know, it'd be like Mary going, look, look, oh, here's the shepherds. Here's those guys that showed up. They were kind of stinky, but they were nice boys. Look at them. Remember them, Joe? Yeah, you do. A little nice, a little smelly. Look how peaceful all the animals were. This is a great day. Oh, look, that's my favorite. Oh, so sweet, right? That's what we think Mary treasured and pondered. She scrapbooked it. Take that right off the screen. It says she treasured and pondered. Treasured means to value something so highly you commit it to memory, to value and to cherish it. Ponder is the interesting one for me. Ponder means to converse, to go back and forth, to wrestle with something. She wrestled with this. She struggled with this. She asked questions. It means to ask questions about it and to be open for it to ask questions about you. It means to think through the implications. She opened herself up to the, me the message and it changed her. Treasured and pondered is the idea of informative thinking, not blind thinking, but rational, informative thinking. Just thinking to yourself, what does this mean? And what does this mean to me? And wrestling with it, it means, you know, we're coming up on it. It means not lying on your taxes. Ugh, but the government's cheating me. And back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. We go to the Bible. We don't just ask, what does it mean? We allow it to speak to us. What does it mean to me? So at some point, 
I allow the text to ask me questions. I allow the text to tell me, Bob, this is key for your life. You have lost this. You have not thought much about this, Bob. Think about it. Behold it. It's important. Let the light shine on you. That's what treasuring is. And if you treasure the word of the Lord, you will begin to treasure the Lord of the word. In the West, and I know I'm simplifying, but we're basically taught we evolved. We're here by accident, and the heart of ultimate reality is impersonal. There's no one to talk to, and there's no one to listen at the heart of ultimate reality. In the East, they will say, of course, there's a God. But God is like all soul. He or she is everything. God is not personal. God is impersonal. He's a life force. And when we die, we lose our personality and we go into the all soul. In other words, ultimate reality in the East is very much like ultimate reality in the West. It's impersonal. There's no one to talk to and no one's going to listen. What's the message of Christmas? Ultimate reality became a person. The heart of reality is, is personal. It's rational. It's love. And he has come to us. And that's the message. So the question then is, am I listening to it? And I'm, am I willing to do what it's telling me to do? Am I willing to walk in it? Am I willing to allow the light to shine and the fear that can come with it, the fear of exposure, and say, what can I learn from this? And let it shine and let it reveal. And then, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to change. I stand before you a flawed person, but I know what I used to be. I know how I was. I know what my heart was like. And he changed me from the inside out. Some things were fast, and some things have taken years, and some things are not quite done. I say not quite done like I'm close. Some are a long ways from being done, (laughs) if I'm going to be honest. But he has changed me from the inside out. And I know there's lots and lots of people here who would voice those same sentiments. He has changed me. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in a familiar passage like this, as we dig and as we search, we find more and more things that speak to us, that challenge us. The question is, Lord, are we courageous enough to be challenged or do we run and hide and put it off and not think about it? Lord, help us to be people who want the truth and are courageous enough to live it. Thank you for sending your son. In Jesus' name, amen.